Would you please turn to Revelation chapter 21? Revelation chapter 21, and we're going to uh, start reading from verse 9. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 9. We're going to read all the way down to verse 21. We won't get through all of that tonight, but uh, it's one portion, so we'll read it as one section. So Revelation chapter 21 and verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone clear as crystal and had a wall great and high and had 12 gates and at the 12 gates were 12 angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, an hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald. The fifth, Sardonyx, the sixth, Sardius, the seventh, Chrysolite, the eighth, Beryl, the ninth, a Topaz, the tenth, a Chrysoprasus, the eleventh, a Jacinth, the twelfth, an Amethyst. And the twelfth and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. Do you realize what you've just read? You've just read a description of the size and the building materials of your eternal home. This is an incredible book that we have. (laughs) Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that um, through from eternity, uh, you have communicated the things that we have to look forward to. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that we can have a sure hope Uh, Lord, we would take these words tonight as if they meant what they said. Uh, For we know, Lord, that you don't uh, reveal yourself to us for us to make things up. Uh, Lord, you reveal truth to us that we might believe it. And so this evening, I pray that we might find comfort in the things we read here. I pray that uh, we would examine ourselves, uh, whether we are in the faith and whether we will find a place in the city. And I pray that that might be an encouragement and a challenge to each of us tonight. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Revelation chapter 17, uh, one of the angels which had the seven vials took John and he showed him the destruction of the great whore. Now it's uncertain whether this is the same angel 
But another of the seven angels, or one of the seven angels, came, uh, comes again to show John the other half of that same comparison. The establishment of the faithful bride. And so one of the angels came to show the destruction of the great whore, the other to show the establishment of the faithful bride. In both cases, the reference is to a city. The first is the epitome of rebellion and lust. The second, the consummation of faith and hope. All of those who composed John's audience had citizenship in one of these two places. And that's the point of the comparison. He wanted them to think, do I belong to the great whore? Am I a part of the world? Or do I belong to the new Jerusalem? Do I look forward as an overcomer, as one with faith in Christ to my eternal home? John wrote Revelation to the church, and he wrote it to the church as a challenge and as an encouragement. Faith will overcome, the world will fail, examine your citizenship, if we can put it that way. And so having detailed the fall of the world, John goes on to show the eternal city which forms the hope of the faithful, which is here called the Lamb's Wife. We're going to have a look at this over at least two messages because there's a lot here. And tonight we're going to start off with the externals of the city and we won't even get through all of those this evening. Our first point this evening is a word I've used before, a, retur- a recurring gune. And that word gune in the Greek is a reference to a woman or a wife. And so that's where we start tonight. Revelation chapter 21 verses 9 and 10. We'll read again just those two verses. And there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. It's a lot of sevens, isn't it? And talked with me saying, come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now we might be puzzled as to why the Lamb's wife is suddenly a city. Only two chapters ago, we identified her as the church, which returns with the Lord Jesus Christ there at his second coming. And so the question, is the bride the church, or is the bride this future city? Well, it is common for the inhabitants of a city to be referred to by the name of the city itself. We might say that Brisbane has elected a new mayor. Does that mean the geographical boundaries elected the mayor? No, it means that the people that make up the city did that, but we talk about the city as the people. We talk about Coffs Harbour spreading out, don't we? It's amazing to see Coffs Harbour spreading north as new um, developments open up but it's not any geographical boundary that's pushing itself out. It's people moving there, and therefore the city is spreading out. Sometimes it's difficult to identify a city separate from its inhabitants, and vice versa. Often a city and its inhabitants are used interchangeably, and we know that the scriptures do that on a number of occasions. And this is particularly the case when God is trying to emphasize the citizenship of believers to the city. God is trying to tie these two things together in contrast to being citizens of the world. 
I'll read to you a quote from a man by the name of Johnson. He says, The figure of a bride city, bride hyphen, hyphen city, captures two characteristics of the New Jerusalem. God's personal relationship with his people, that's the bride part, and the life of the people in communion with him, that is the city part, and with its social connotations. And I think that's a good perspective because it reminds us that eternal life has more to it than robotic worship. Uh, we won't just be the bride of God in the sense that we stand before his face for all eternity saying yes to God in everything that he says that he wants us to do. There is more to it than that. There is a living community of those who live by faith. All of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be together in a place as a city as inhabitants of that city, and we will have a communion, one with another, as well as with God. And so there will be a community of the faithful surrounding God. Now, the new Jerusalem, the city itself, gains its identity from its citizens. And we're going to see that in just a moment when the foundations of the wall are named after some of the citizens, where the people who live inside it actually are marked upon the city itself. And perhaps this is why they are both called the bride, because they gain their identity one from another. Now the city that is pictured here as coming down, it further adorns the people who make up the bride of Christ. And I think in its most technical sense, the bride of Christ is the church. But this city that comes down out of heaven from God is an adornment and a oneness with those people. Who formed the bride. Now before we come to the reflections of the bride in the city, we need to note the city's dominating feature and it's a very quick mention. I wonder if you, met, if you noticed it as we were reading through. Brings us to our second point, the residing glory. <clears throat> Verses 10 and 11. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. I wonder if you noticed that little statement there at the beginning of verse 11, having the glory of God. The new, the new Jerusalem has the glory of God, and this section of the description is really an external view of the city from the things that are brought up in this, part, in this portion. We're looking at it from the outside. We look at the walls, we look at the foundations, and then we start to move our way inside. We're going to deal more with God's particular glory and dwelling inside the city when we get inside the city. But perhaps this first mention is a reference to the glow from the city. I don't know if you've ever driven towards a major city at night time and you've seen that sort of umbrella of light that comes over the top of the city and perhaps you don't even see the city yet but you see its glow. This is obviously due to the contrast between the light of the city and the lack of light beyond or surrounding the city. and It's a good thing to see. But this city will exist in surroundings that never have light. Never, sorry, never have darkness. Let me just put it the other way. The surroundings of this city will never be in darkness. There will never be night. And we'll get to that a little bit later in the description. 
and yet it will glow. <clears throat> the light of the city will be evident, even though there is never any night. The Greek word for light in the reference there it says, In verse 11, having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone. That word light is phosphor. And so it's talking a lot about um, the glowing. Uh, It's from which we get our English word phosphorescence or phosphor. Um, It's talking about a a glowing from within. Uh, This light, as is described there in Revelation 21, is comparable to that of a precious stone. In this instance, that precious stone is jasper. Now, we could have a look at photos of Jasper through Wikipedia or whatever internet site we want to and have a look at the various properties of Jasper and try and bring that into bearing with what God is trying to say in this portion. But what we call Jasper now is an opaque stone. And that's not what John's talking about. We know that for certain because it's clear as crystal. That's what it says there in the verse. And so what John's talking about here is not what we call Jasper Now, this substance is obviously at least translucent, if not transparent, and it's something that is bright, something that is clear. The point is that the light was crystal clear, like jasper, okay, clarity. Now, the clarity of that light shows that it is unhindered light. What makes light unclear? What makes light uh, different to its original source? Well, it's when it comes into contact with something that would diffract the light, reflect the light, alter the light in some state. There is no tint, no diffusion, no obstruction, no restriction to this light. This light is bright and this light is clear. And I think the point of saying this is because this light has never been viewed like this before. All the way through the scriptures, we have been acquainted with the fact that God's presence is accompanied by light. In fact, part of God's presence is light. But God's light has never been seen in the scriptures unhindered. Never. And I want to show that to you as we go through the scriptures. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 20 from verse 18. This is a very well-known portion where Israel was afraid of the light. And there's an interesting little expression here. Exodus chapter 20, and we'll read from verse 18. This is just after the Ten Commandments, verse 18. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountains smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God is come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces that ye sin not. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. Now, what happened when Moses came out of that darkness? Well, his face shone, didn't it? You see, the brightness of the light was enclosed in darkness. Why was that the case? Because if the brightness of God shone in all of its strength upon the people, they would have died. 
It was only that Moses was allowed and called into God's presence that he was able to survive. Even then he didn't see God clearly. There was no open fellowship between Israel and God. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35, we read about the presence of God coming down upon the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35. Verse 34, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle the glory of the lord the shining of the lord filled the tabernacle but all around the tabernacle what was there there was a cloud the light the shining was obscured by the cloud that was surrounding it the cloud often covered the tabernacle concealing the presence of god that abode there because the people couldn't look upon the clear light of god Now, in referring to the light or referring to the cloud of glory, the place that was God's dwelling upon the earth, the location of God's dwelling, the rabbis coined the term Shekinah. Now, this term is not a biblical term. It's something that is being used uh, post the Bible times, and it's used to refer to the cloud of God's dwelling place there in the tabernacle. It is useful but some people have taken that term and they have used it in uh, unbiblical ways. If you ever come across that, I just want to point one thing out. Um, mystical Judaism uses this word, Shekinah, uh, to try and say that this word is feminine, therefore God has a feminine presence. Um, and the thing that I want to point out is that even though the word is feminine, It's an abuse of the Hebrew language to say that just because a word is feminine, the thing that it represents is as well. Uh, The point in in the New Testament, the word for God's glory is doxa, and that is feminine as well. So to try and be a professional when you don't know what you're doing gets you in a lot of trouble. So the Shekinah glory is a way of referring back to that glory cloud But we need to be careful when we use that term to remember that it's not just a strictly Bible term. So we know that God's presence is never able to be viewed with perfect clarity. And it's because people dwell in their sin, in their sinful bodies. New Testament example, Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17 verses 1 and 2. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, it says, And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart. Matthew 17, 2, And was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. You know, the most interesting thing about this is that for most of his ministry, Jesus Christ was not transfigured. Most of the time he spent upon the earth, his face didn't shine. His clothes didn't shine. 
He existed in concealed glory. His glory was veiled in human flesh, if we can put it that way. And so in the history of our interaction with God, God's glory has always been hindered. Uh, Ever since sin occurred, we have never been able to experience God's unrestricted presence. And that is to protect those who are confronted with it from the effects of his holiness, which would have rendered us dead. We would have been judged by his presence. And so the clarity of the light in the new Jerusalem is very significant. The fact that it shines bright as clear as crystal is a wonderful thought. Signifies that unhindered and unqualified fellowship that we will have with the most holy God and we'll be able to handle it. That'll be wonderful. Thirdly, New Jerusalem, we look at the reassuring girdle of the city. Let's have a look back in Revelation chapter 21. In verse 12, there's a small statement. It speaks about the wall of the city and then it goes on to talk about the gates and the wall. We're going to deal with the wall first and then we'll come back to the gates in another time. In verse 12, it says, And had a wall great and high. Now, city walls are important for, in, uh, for protecting the inhabitants from invasion, but the great white throne judgment has already happened, hasn't it? And so we might wonder what the point of having a wall is. Why have a wall to a city that's never going to be invaded? Well, the wall is not only a physical barrier to inhabitants, but it's also a psychological comfort to those who are living inside it. And this is how some commentators have understood the wall of the New Jerusalem. A uh, commentator by the name of Kittle says this, The purpose of the wall is not to help defend the city, because there is no enemy to defend against. It rather is a constant reminder of the eternal security of the city's inhabitants. And whether or not that is the picture that John's trying to get through to us, it's certainly true. It's a reminder and hopefully an eternal reminder that we are eternally secure in our belonging in that city. Now, rather than speaking of the purpose of the wall, as we might hope he would, John focuses on the construction and the appearance of the wall. And we read about that in verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, perhaps these 12 foundations are 12 layers of the foundations, but more likely they're probably 12 12 sections of the foundations because as we'll read, there are 12 gates. And if you imagine three gates on each side of the square and you've got a corner to be underlaid with the foundation as well, you can have 12 sections of the foundation as it goes around the city. And so perhaps that's how the arrangement of the names goes with the foundation. The apostles of Christ... The apostles of the Lamb are inscribed in the foundations of the city. The apostles of the Lamb are called the foundations of the church. And that's not just in Revelation, but also in Ephesians chapter 2. We read about that. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 and 20 say, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, 
and ye are built and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so the apostles and prophets laid the foundation for the church by preaching the gospel, by uttering their visions for the prophets, which are probably the New Testament prophets mentioned here, and by writing the inspired scriptures. And so as the tools that God used to reveal the New Testament, the apostles were the foundation of the church. They were the way that God built his church. Here's a thought to ponder, though. Who's the twelfth name? Is it Judas? The one that was included originally in the disciples? Is it Matthias, the one chosen to replace the twelfth? Or is it Paul? the apostle born out of due season. I've got an idea. You can have an idea. There's a suggestion for your trip home from church tonight. Revelation chapter 21, verses 15 and 16 go on to tell us more about the walls of the city. It says, And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth foursquare, and the length is as large as the breadth and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. Now, the wall surrounds the city, and so its size is the same size, at least in circumference, of the city. Now, the city is described as four square, and that word is a word uh, talking about a four-sided shape, either a rectangle or a square. And because we read that its length is the same as its breadth, we know that it's a square, at least in its footprint. 12,000 furlongs is the measurement given. And a furlong is the closest thing that the English translators had to what the Greek word was, which is a stadia. And this is a measurement based on a Greek running track, which was around about 180 meters long or 0.18 kilometers. And so if you calculate 12,000 stadia at 0.18 of a kilometer long, this gives us a distance of 2,160 kilometers. 2,160 kilometers. I messed that up. I thought it was 2,160 meters when I first did it, and I thought, wow, that's a big city. <laughs> 2,160 kilometers. Now, it's unclear as to whether this measurement is the circumference of the four sides or whether it is the distance of one side that then goes for the width, the height, and the length. So do we divide the 2,160 by 4 or do we multiply the 2,160 by 4 to get the sides? Now I think it refers to one side. It doesn't have to. You can differ. Because John goes on to say that the breadth is the same as the length and so when he gives us this one measurement, it allows us to calculate based upon the length, the breadth and then the height how big the whole shape is. But either way, it reveals a very large city. In fact, Earth has never seen a city so large. John also tells us that the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. So we're talking about a cube. Now, to give you a 
very rough estimation, I stress, very rough. We're within a couple of hundred kilometres. We're either looking, depending on whether the 2,160 kilometres is the total circumference around the base, or whether it is each side is 2,160 kilometres, we're either looking at a city the size of the state of Victoria, which is also a thousand times higher than Mount Kosciuszko, or if that's the smaller size, we're looking at a city which is the size of Western Australia, Northern Territory and South Australia combined, and that rises into the sky the same distance, which based on what I could find out is halfway to the International Space Station. Okay, so big, I think, is the point. <laughs> the point is that the New Jerusalem is a spectacle to behold. It's huge. And the biggest point there is there's plenty of space. If just half of that New Jerusalem was devoted to living quarters, okay, half of it devoted to people living there, and we all got a single room, 10 metres by 10 metres by 10 metres. How's that, a 10 metre high ceiling? That's a tall ceiling, isn't it? If we were to give dwelling quarters like that for a single person each, it could house over 50 billion people. But many, many more than that, I'm sure. What is really sad is with a city that size, how many people will miss out on the New Jerusalem? Matthew chapter 7 and verse 14 says, Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. A city that size, and few there be that find it. And that's what I wanted to remind everyone who's here tonight. There is room in the city for you. There's plenty of room there. I wonder if you know that when Jesus rose from the dead and when he ascended up to go to heaven, he went to prepare a place for you. And what a place it is. It's an amazing place. Why then face eternal torment as you pay the price for your own sin when Jesus has prepared a home for you with him? Why miss out? This is the offer that many, many people have accepted. This is the offer that rulers have taken up. Smart people, uh, not so smart people, rich people, poor people, old people, young people, people of every walk of life, of every generation of human existence have heard the call of God, have realized that they have to do something about their sin and have seen that God is the only one who can forgive them. People have accepted the only way of salvation, the only way of eternal life. And the Bible makes it very clear what that way is. John chapter 3 and verse 16. So well known this verse because it's so important. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And this is the city where we will enjoy everlasting life but only if we've been forgiven of our sin. Only. Only if we've been forgiven by that one who died for us. And so there is room in God's city for you, but you will only get there if you choose 
to believe. As I mentioned before, the wall surrounds the city. And so the wall, the dimensions of the wall are the same on all sides. Its length is the same on all sides. And yet another measurement is specified here in Revelation chapter 21 when he measures as 144 cubits. Now a cubit is the length from the elbow to the top of the hand. And in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 17, we read that there was an angel who was measuring this wall. It says, And he measured the wall thereof, and hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. Now the angel either appears as a man, or what he's probably doing is he's taking these measurements from a human perspective. They want us to know that this angel is not massive or tiny. They're trying to make it communicable to us so that we can understand what's being measured here. He wants us to know how big. Now, the shortest variant of the cubit was a Hebrew cubit, which is around about 45 centimetres, and uh, we'll underestimate it. We'll take the smallest one so we're not accused of telling fishing stories where we say it was this big, where it was really only this big. And so perhaps this is the height of the wall. Perhaps it is 64.8 meters high which is what 144 45 centimeter cubits equals you see if you're a pastor you've got to do maths too it's it's a jack of all trades 64.8 meters perhaps this is the height of the wall but in comparison to a city that is as big as we thought of before perhaps this measurement relates to something else perhaps it is the thickness of the wall which you would need in order to reach to great heights regardless of what it refers to 144 cubits is the measurement and it's meant to show us that this wall is impressive now the whole city is meant to be impressive and i will gladly put my hand up and say i'm impressed (laughs) i was surprised by a number of the things that i saw and understood about this city not the least of which is that we can have a description of it in a Bible in our own language in this day and age. Now this huge wall is not only huge, it is also beautiful. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 18 to 20 describe it. Made me think of George Wilberforce, this little passage here. Revelation chapter 21 verses 18 to 20, And the building of the wall was as of jasper, and the city was pure gold like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all matter of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. Does anyone have all of those stones? No, I'm sure. Does anyone have any of those stones? If they're the right ones that we're trying to think of compared to what they called them back in 1600s. This is a beautiful wall. It's meant to be adorned with the best of what we are familiar with in our creation. Now, I'm not going to waste your time tonight by trying to make links between the precious stones and different disciples because there are 12 stones here 
And there are 12 disciples' names in the foundations of the New Jerusalem. And some people have tried to say, well, this one's Peter and this one's John. And perhaps that's the case, but I'm not going to show my ignorance by trying to do that. The point is that the wall and its foundations are beautifully adorned. And this is meant to show to us the glory of the apostles and those who form the foundation of the church in sharing the New Testament. There is honour there to those who are able to have this privileged position. And yet the crowning feature of the city is not its foundations, is it? And when you go to a house, do you go, wow, look at those brilliant foundations, aren't they wonderful? <laughs> I like the choice of colours there in that retaining wall. <laughs> Not really. The crowning feature of the city is the glory. The glory of God. It's not its grandeur, even though that's amazing. It's not its gates, even though they're beautiful, as we'll come to see. It's not its wall, even though that's magnificent. The greatest attraction in this city is the glory of God. And for a city who can have foundations of the world's most precious stones, the glory of God has to be good to outshine it. And I think that's the point. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your saviour, this is your home. This is the place where you belong. You might live in Coffs Harbour, but Coffs Harbour is not your city. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you have a new home, another home, a place where you abide and a place that reflects your faith. And this is it. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sin, then there is still plenty of room in this city for you. And the Saviour has died for you, meaning that tonight you can settle the fact of your eternal home. And I would challenge you to do that. I'm happy to talk to you about it if you'd like to tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's an amazing thing to read about these um, dimensions, to read about these, uh, Lord, features of our eternal home. And we look forward, Lord, to one day being able to see these things. It is not too much to expect that one day we will finally get to heaven. We know that we have your promise we know, Lord, that we will see this city one day and we look forward to that day. Uh, Father, we look forward to it most of all that we might be able to have sweet fellowship with you and enjoy all that you are. Lord, we pray that tonight you would work in each of our hearts, encourage us, Lord, for our faith in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that if there is someone here tonight and they don't know for certain that Jesus Christ has taken away their sin, then I pray that they would settle this in their heart. Help them to see, Lord, that this is not some fairy tale, but this is the word of God. This is given to us that we might be prepared for one day facing eternity. Lord, we thank you for our time in your word. We pray that it would change our time upon the earth. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.